Hey everyone, in this AB Talks I sit with Vishen Lakiani and we start to get to know the guy behind Mind Valley. But who is this person? Who's the human? Who's this entrepreneur? What is his background, his childhood, his mindset? And does he practice what he preaches? Hi Vishen. Hi Anas. First question, how are you really doing? How am I really doing? Yes. Okay, so I'm in Dubai right now and Dubai is one of those cities that absolutely inspires me, just the people I meet here. But I'm also going through literally one of the busiest weeks of my life because the biggest event in my company history with 2,000 people starts tomorrow. And I, I think I overcommitted to too many things. I'm putting on this massive event and then I also ended up doing a training yesterday for 50 ministers and, and CEOs. And then I somehow also told my team, I want to book three days in the studio and just churn out podcast. And I think I almost burnt myself out. Mm. So I'm excited, but I also am just looking forward to this week ending so I can relax. When you burn out, what does Vision need to do to un unburn or get better? So I have been through phases when I've burnt out. And typically the, the, the manifestation is that you get sick. Right? You get sick, but not only, get, not only that, you get grumpy, you get uh, more, more, more impatient with the people around you, which are not good qualities if you're a CEO or even if you have children. Mm. And so what I try to do is if I feel that I'm about to burn out or if I feel suddenly too much stressed or overwhelmed, I take immediate action to calm down. So for example, Monday was a crazy day. Tuesday was a crazy day, but I immediately paused and I took four hours on Tuesday to just take a walk on the beach and not touch work. Just take a walk on the beach, not touch work, listen to music, meditate, listen to some hypnotherapy audio and take supplements that cause your body to relax and calm down. Hmm. So it works for you? It works. But if I don't do that, then I'm, I know I'm putting my health at risk. So even though I'm so busy, I cancel meetings, I push work back just so I can take care of my health. Because to me, Anas, the most important thing is your health and wellness. If I asked you, Vishen, who are you? That's a very interesting thing. In Hindu culture, which is the culture I'm born in, there's this concept called Dharma. And Dharma is sort of like the mission that your soul or that God gave you. I believe I am a soul with a Dharma that is to help spread enlightened ideas, much like you help take wisdom from many different teachers all across the world and help take this wisdom and make this wisdom explode and go viral for the modern age. Mm. And I do that through our YouTube channels, through our platform Mind Valley, which has become the biggest mind, body, spirit platform in the world, through all of the authors I work with. I am a distributor of wisdom. That is my Dharma and that is who I am. And I found Anas that this calling is so powerful that if I try to deviate from it, because when I first started, I was teaching meditation and my friends thought I was crazy. I was a Silicon Valley VP who quit a high paying job because I suddenly felt a calling to teach meditation, which is a form of wisdom. I wasn't making much money. My friends thought I'd gone crazy because back in 2003, who was teaching meditation? It wasn't even really accepted. And I felt embarrassed by what I did. So I did it very quietly, but on the side, I experimented and started other companies, other projects. I'm an engineer, so I wrote code, I wrote new applications. 
In all of those other projects, it was always an uphill climb. There were always problems with investors, problems with getting the project off the ground, business failure. But with meditation, everything just flowed. Everything was just so easy. But I was so stubborn, I kept telling myself, there's no market in teaching spiritual ideas. So for 10 years, I didn't fully concentrate in it. Only in November 2013, I decided I'm going to cut everything else and focus on one thing, Mind Valley. Mm. And that's when Mind Valley, over the last 10 years, became the massive platform that it is today. So when you ask me who I am, my dharma is to help spread enlightened ideas. Mm. If uh, I give you a white canvas uh -huh. and I ask you to draw what your current mental state is, what would you draw? Oh, I know exactly. <laughs> it's going to be a yellow circle. Yellow circle. Why? A yellow circle, to me, represents balance. It represents being complete. Hmm. To me, balance is very important. I'm a CEO of a big company, but at the same time, I'm a father. I'm a friend. I am a human being with a body that has its limitations. I'm a person who has goes through a myriad of emotional states. The balance of all of that, the circle, is important. Mm. The yellow represents positivity. It represents the sun. It represents brightness. I want to shine a light on powerful ideas. I want to spread brightness. I want to spread joy. Joy is an is a emotion I associate with yellow. The circle also represents the circle of life. The most important things to me are my two children, Hayden and Eve. They are the most important thing. So even though I have my dharma, when you're a father, your most important thing are your kids. And finally, why is it a circle? And why is it empty on the inside, right? Why, why is it just a yellow line, but not a full yellow circle? It's because I'm incomplete. What I mean by that is there's so much more I want to learn. Mm. And that's why I see it as a yellow circle, but the inside being hollow because I want, there's so much more that I know I want to nourish within myself to learn, to get better at. I'm a perpetual student of the human experience. Hmm. Vision, if we go back, uh, how would you describe your childhood? I grew up as a kid in Malaysia. Hmm. My mom was a Malaysian public school teacher. My dad worked in a department store. I grew up in a very typical Indian home of the 1980s. So it was a lot of people living under one roof. My grandfather, my grandfather had six sons. All the sons lived under one roof with their families, with their wives if they were married. And at the peak, I had 23 people living under one roof in my family. It was so crowded, right? I slept on a mattress next to my parents' bed. But at the same time, it was a really unique way of living, which you don't see in the world today. I was never alone. I'm an only child, but I had cousins like in the same house as me. I was never alone. And I think that was a really beautiful part about growing up in Malaysia, growing up in that traditional way. Mm. It, it reminds me of this um, idea that some children are brought up by a village, not parents. Exactly. You know, and I, I, think I, that's I find really there's a big advantage to those children usually because they experience, it's not just the mom and dad. If your mom and dad are not great and that's the only upbringing right. you have, it's a risk. Yeah. But if you have uncles and cousins and, you know, a neighbor or, and they all play a part in, I yeah. don't know. 
some you learn a group of things and you'll be more social probably i think it's very true like my dad worked in a city i was born in kuala lumpur my dad worked in a city called malacca which was two hours drive away he worked there in a factory and he had to drive back and forth he was the general manager of a factory and so i only saw my dad on weekends and i'm, I'm very close to my dad i love my dad a lot but i only saw him on weekends so growing up at least i had his brothers mm. in the house with me right mm. so i never truly felt alone and i read um vision that you had an awkward, sensitive, um, you had Asperger's at a higher probably spectrum at a certain mm-hmm. age. Did you like recognize these characteristics no. at a young age? I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I didn't know that I had a non-neurotypical brain. Um, and um, But now when I read about Asperger's, I understand that that was something that I had. In fact, uh, my son, has been diagnosed with it. Mm. Most men over 35 were never diagnosed with it because this diagnosis only started emerging like in the late 1990s. So usually men like me, we discover it when our children are diagnosed. Mm. And then we realize the doctors looking at us realize, oh, you have it too. And that was literally what happened to me. The doctor who was looking at my son said, you know, you have it. And then I read about it. It was actually a beautiful thing because I started understanding why I was different as a teenager. Hmm. why I was so good at science. I was so good in school, but it was so hard for me to make friends. It was so hard for me to even talk to a girl. I never really dated until I was maybe 22. I never, a lot of things that teenagers take for granted, like I didn't have. I remember going to high school. I only went out with other kids outside school five times. That's like once a year because connecting with other kids was, was not always easy for me. Hmm. So how was school for you? So school was beautiful because I was an avid learner and school was easy for me because of my brain. I was acing almost every single subject, hmm. which was not always a good thing because it made the other kids really dislike me even more. So but school was, school was a beautiful time for me. Hmm even considering that you're not very social or you can't connect to people easily? It doesn't make people bully you or, or silo? No, I, got, you... I got bullied in school. But when I look at why that happens, you know, sometimes life will give you a smashing to make you stronger. Hmm. Me being bullied in school was a very powerful smashing. Now, why I was bullied was an interesting thing. I had really bad skin. I had acne. So you know how what you believe about yourself becomes true? I remember when I was 13 years old, a pimple appeared on my cheek and a well-meaning family member, remember I lived in this house with 23 people, a well-meaning family member said, oh, you have pimples and you're 13, you're a teenager, watch, you're going to get more and more and more and more and more of these pimples, it's going to be all over your face. Now that isn't necessarily true, right? Not all teenagers get pimples, Mm. but because I was young and this person was an adult, I believed this person and before you know it, I had the worst case of acne. I remember my mom taking me to dermatologists, getting injections in my face. Nothing would make it go away. My face was constantly like covered in acne. That caused me confidence issues. But the worst part was the bullying. Standing in the lunch line, waiting at the cafeteria, I remember a moment where the kid behind me started singing a poem he wrote about how ugly I am, calling me Mr. Pimple Face. And all the other kids laughing at that. And it was just horrendous. But it led me to a really interesting discovery. 
So because I didn't have friends and I grew up in a country, a developing country, there was no internet. There were only three television channels, maybe only three or four American TV shows a day. But what I had to do to occupy my time was I would browse my father's bookshelf and just read the books that my dad had. My dad never went to university, but my dad self-educated himself. He bought books by personal growth legends by Jose Silva, uh, Bob Proctor, Wayne Dyer. And at the age of 14, I started picking up these books. And I find this one book called Silva Mind Control. It was a 1977 edition of that book. And in that book, Jose Silva, who's this mind science pioneer, speaks about how the mind can influence the body. And he says, and I never forget this line, the easiest organ to influence with the mind is the skin. So I said, okay, let's see what we can do. So I start pouring myself into the concepts of meditation, mind-body healing, communicating with your body. And using the Silva method, so Jose Silva pioneered this thing called imagery therapy where you visualize your body healing. I had pimples for five years. At the age of 17, when I got good at the Silva method, in five weeks, visualizing my skin healing three times a day for three minutes each time, so nine minutes total, in five weeks, I completely heal my skin. Now, when that happened, my life changed because I realized I have control over my reality. And at that point, I realized I could not complain about anything again. If I wanted to heal my skin and I could heal five years of skin disease, what else could I do? So the next thing I do is I get really good at martial arts and I end up going to the US for the first time, setting foot on American soil to represent Malaysia at the US Open Taekwondo Championships, which is Korean karate. And then I visualize myself studying in the US, I make that happen. And at that point, my life has taken a completely different turn. I realize and I come to believe that reality is a malleable illusion and that we can poke reality, we can shift things, we have control over our reality. And I go super deep into these methodologies. And eventually, I decide to get certified to teach the Silva method. And I become one of their top instructors. Mind Valley started as a website to bring people into these Silva method meditation classes. Mm. And 20 years go by. And one day, because the founder of the Silva method, Jose Silva, he died in 1999. In 2017, his daughter, Diana, asks me to become the new face of the Silva method. And popularized their program. Today, this is the most popular program on Mind Valley, hmm. And we've put millions of people through this training. So you see, if I didn't get bullied, if that kid in that lunch line didn't end up singing and writing that horrible song about how ugly I was, if that didn't cause me to cry and to feel so miserable, maybe I wouldn't have had the desire to master the mind. Maybe Mind Valley wouldn't have started. Maybe a million people wouldn't have gone through the Silva method. So I thank that bully every single day. Hmm. How interesting. I know you also have your opinions on the schooling system. Yeah. Um, why do you think it doesn't work? Well, it's not that it doesn't work. Hmm. It's just that it is highly ineffective at how it works. Hmm. Okay, so let me give you an example. When I think about the things that truly changed my life, it wasn't that I know the amount of rainfall that Africa gets in a given year, or that I know the history of the Napoleonic Wars. That's knowledge. Hmm. Knowledge today, you can get on your smartphone because all of us walk around with basically the collective knowledge of humanity in our pockets. 
Yet schools waste an inordinate amount of time getting students to cram and understand this knowledge, often memorize this knowledge. I remember going to a top-tier British private school in Malaysia, geography class. The teacher would make us cram. She would write down these geography notes on a blackboard and we had to copy it by hand. Mm. The teacher wasn't even saying anything. The idea was that if you copy these notes into your book, it will sink into your head. What use is that? Now, I was a top geography student. I was a top history student. But the reason I was a top history student and geography student is because I didn't value that knowledge. I valued the knowledge of personal growth. Mm -hmm. Now, let me explain what this means. I mentioned my dad's bookshelf. There was another book that was on my dad's bookshelf called How to Develop a Superpower Memory by Harry Lorraine. I read that book. I remember as a 12-year-old traveling on it, going on a trip to Europe with my father, carrying that book with me, doing the memory exercises. I got so good that eventually I could simply memorize the geography textbook and memorize the history textbook. You could open up to any page, page 54, and say, what summarize page 54? And I would know. Hmm. I wasn't born with a genius mind, but I trained my memory because of that book. Now, schools though didn't teach me that. Schools were making me cram on history and geography. Why didn't the school just take one darn semester and teach the kids memory hacking? Teach the kids how to train their memory. No kid would ever feel stupid again, but schools don't because schools waste our children's attention on the wrong thing. Why didn't the school teach me the silver method so that as a 13-year-old, I could learn that I have mastery over my body? Why didn't the school teach me how to develop a superpower memory? By the way, the number two program in Mind Valley today is Superbrain by Jim Quick. We teach people how to develop a superpower memory. Again, all the lessons of my teenagehood pop back into my adulthood. So I started with my super memory. I remember scoring the top grades in nine out of 12 subjects when I was 14 years old. And school was never an issue again. But now I spent that extra time because I didn't have to cram for exams. I didn't have to, to it took me so much faster time to do my homework. I spent that extra time studying meditation studying exercise so I could become a martial arts champion, studying memory, studying emotional mastery, studying confidence. I remember reading books so I couldn't make friends. I read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Napoleon Hill. Mm. I read that book eight times. And when I was 17, not only had I figured out how to make friends, but I was voted student council president. And that leadership skill helped me become a CEO today. Again, schools never taught it to me. My best education was browsing my father's bookshelf and reading these books for maybe an hour a day before going to sleep as a teenager. This is why I believe the way what we teach in schools today is so ridiculously useless. Why are we not teaching Jose Silva's work or Wayne Dyer or Bob Proctor? Why are we not teaching wealth mindset or abundance mindset or meditation or emotional mastery or how to create friendships or networking or even things such as how to start and launch your own company? Mm. We teach the most useless things in school because school was designed in an age before the smartphone. Hmm. Do you think it's not a coincidence that they want the schooling systems across the world to graduate employees because if you make people so independent and so resourceful, they will not want to 
be laborers to other organizations. Yeah. So, so, so I, it's not a coincidence. So I don't believe in that. Remember, my, my, my mom is a school teacher. Hmm. I don't believe in that. I believe the people who run our schools, the people who run our education departments, they want this change. They know this change is important. The problem is, it's an institutional problem, right? So let's look at American universities. How do you get into a, an American university? The SAT exam, hmm. which is gonna measure your verbal and your math, right? Verbal and math. So what do American schools have to do? Because kids want to get to university, the schools have to spend all of this time ensuring people master verbal and math so they can get the requisite score on the SAT to get a good university. That is dumb because verbal and math, okay, let's talk about verbal. Why is verbal so important today when anybody can use ChatGPT to write books, to write composition? There are more important things we can teach because AI can now support verbal. Why do we spend all that time teaching math when we carry a calculator in our smartphones? Why is it that universities are testing on these two things, but not testing you on risk-taking, testing you on emotional mastery, testing you on compassion, testing you on the quality of your, your character, mm. testing you on things such as um, how efficiently you can generate ideas and activate ideas, testing you on leadership. A lot of this is ignored by the schooling system. So educators so badly want to change this. They so badly want to bring meditation into the school. They so badly want to bring these ideas. Teachers approach me all this time and say, hey, thank you for Mind Valley. I wish I had more time to teach these ideas in my classroom, but they can't because the examination system, which is institutional, is measuring the wrong thing. We have to get governments to change the examination system and we have to get universities to stop paying as much attention as they do on useless things like the SATs. Hmm. I read uh, a few days ago, an uh, interesting uh, book by Napoleon also. And by Napoleon was, Hill? Yeah, and he talked about the difference between schooling and education. Right. There's a major difference. If somebody goes to school, it doesn't mean they're necessarily educated. Right. They went to school, like you said, they got a good score because they memorized something, mm. they left, but they're not educated individuals. That's why you see people with PhDs or masters and you're like, he seems very ignorant. Right. Because for you, you think degree equals knowledge and education, but that person just passed. Yeah. But it doesn't mean he's a open-minded, rich-minded, educated human being. Maybe he didn't go through experiences, yeah. maybe he didn't open his mind and traveled. And that's education. You know, and and what you're talking about seems like it's such common sense. Yes, it's not yet. It's not so common, because if you teach a child about integrity, about respect, about social skills, he has a much higher chance of being right. successful. Right. Rather than a nerd and a genius, but he doesn't know how to talk to anybody. Nobody respects him. Right. Nobody listens to him. It's exactly. Crazy. And that's why. But I think now we're going to start seeing that change because here's an interesting thing that's happening in the world. We gotta change this top down, right? The way companies hire has to change, the way universities accept students have to change, only then can schooling change. Mm. Companies are now changing. Many companies no longer look at college degrees. Mm. They literally don't. I, I don't know the college degrees of the best people I hire because I don't think college degrees actually matter. And then the second thing is, universities are changing their application process because of chat GPT. Mm. And so as, Company hiring gets disrupted and universities get disrupted. Schools no longer are going to be have to are going to be shackled 
to follow these institutional rules. And that's when we're gonna see a massive change in our education system. Schools need to be teaching intuition. Schools need to be teaching meditation. Schools need to be teaching compassion practices. They can't do that because it's not in the checklist of what companies and universities are looking for. But those two things are about to go through massive disruption. Mm. Uh, if you don't mind, tell us something about yourself that nobody knows. Oh, <laughs> I've been asked this question so many times mm. and I've shared so many things that nobody knows okay. that I might be running out of things to share that nobody <laughs> knows. Okay, so one of the things that I do and, and, and that I, I believe is very important to my life is energy. So the Chinese have this practices like Qigong where they move energy. I've started training with Qigong masters, training with other teachers and spiritual teachers who work with energy. And I believe in energy. I believe in the energy of our bodies. I believe that we can literally bless situations and bless things that we can heal with energy. Even with a loved one, you can send energy across time and space like the Rumi said, I closed my eyes and spoke to you in a thousand silent ways. I believe that we can influence the energy of the people around us. You can influ influence the energy of your lover. You can connect energetically with your child. I don't believe this is woo-woo because now science is starting to show this is real. Mm -hmm. For example, there were studies done by Dr. William Broad at the San Antonio Mind Science Center. And he would take two people like you and me, except we'd be in different rooms. One would be a receiver and receivers would be hooked up to 19 different machines that measured uh, brain frequency, um, your heartbeat, your galvanic skin response. And then the senders at a specific time, like 1.53 p.m. would be told, think of the receiver and send them positive thoughts. At that exact time, the machines would show something changing in the body. We can influence, energy is real. Now, as I started believing more in this, what I found is that I seemed to get luckier in life. Good things happen. Blessings happen every single day. Like my life operates with beautiful coincidences, with synchronicities. If I'm sitting down in front of someone or if I'm hosting an event, people often come up to me and say, wow, I'm feeling so good here. But what they don't know is before I walked in that room to host this event, I imagined that I can beam the right energy into the room and fill that room with energy. And I'm actually doing subtle Qigong practices to do that. And I'm filling the room with the energy of compassion or the energy of connectedness or the energy of heart and compassion. When I go into a project or a business meeting, I attempt to influence in a positive way the energy of the room. Mm. And so this is a secret of how I live my life. When I wake up in the morning, I don't just do the six phase meditation. I then do energy practices. Mm. Okay. Why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Hmm. I feel it's my dharma. So the idea of helping take great wisdom and get it out to the world is the mission that I believe God or the universe has given me. And as long as I'm on that mission, magic happens. I cannot believe my luck. I cannot believe the opportunities that come to me. As long as I stay on that mission. Hmm. If I try to deviate, if I say, hey, I'm going to go and dabble and create this company doing this particular stuff with AI, boom, 
it collapses. But if I stay on that mission, everything is so easy. Mm. It is inevitable, absolutely inevitable, that Mind Valley is going to be one of the greatest education companies in the world. Because look at how broken schooling is. And that's the eventual goal mm. to change the lives of 1 billion people, right? And why I say 1 billion? Because 10, 20 years from now, our global population is going to be 10 billion. 1 billion is 10% of that. And I believe if you change the consciousness of 10% of a population, they will influence the consciousness of everyone else. Mm. And so our goal is change the lives of 1 billion people. Right now, we're at 20 million. So we have a long way to go. But that's what we're going to attempt to do over the next 20 years. Okay, Vishen, this, um, this journey or where you are today, even the person that's sitting in front of me, is not a journey which social media will show as a shortcut. Social media will show it was a shortcut. They'll think you just quickly reached right. here, right? But I'm sure it wasn't a simple journey. Like, how, how was that journey? Were you always in balance? Were you no. struggling? Were you broke? What, if you can tell me that timeline till you sitting here? Okay. When I first started, it was quitting my job to become a meditation teacher. That was 2003. Hmm. Immediately, that was a dip because all of a sudden, I'm not earning as much money as I was earning before. And to make matters worse, that year, I got added to the Muslim watch list in the United States. I'd lived in America for nine years, but after September 11, this law came into effect where men who were born in Muslim countries, and I was born in Malaysia. I'm a, I grew up in a Hindu family, but you know, they don't really care. I had a Malaysian passport. What happened was all of a sudden I'm on this watch list and life became horrible. I couldn't get on a plane without a two hour interview. Coming off a plane, two hours in interrogation before they let you claim your luggage and go. Worse, every four weeks, I had to report to the police every four weeks for fingerprinting, for a mugshot, and to give them my credit card so they could see all my purchases. Why the hell was I there? But it was so disgusting to me. I felt so awful that I decided to leave America. I could not live in a country where I was treated like I was a criminal because I had a passport from a Muslim country. 72,000 people were on that watch list. So I moved back to Malaysia. And that was horrendous for me because I'd lived in America for 10 years. All my friends were there. My business is an American business. I had to go back to my home country and start from scratch. So it was not a good journey. From 2000, now that special registration watch list, Obama, when Obama was elected, he ruled it unconstitutional. And so in 2008, that part of American history was demolished. When Trump tried to bring it back in 2016, there were protests all across America and Trump couldn't bring it back, thank God, right? But now from 2003 to 2008, I'm in Malaysia and I'm miserable, I'm bored, I'm trying to get the company off the ground and it's not going anywhere. It, for five years, nothing was moving, absolutely nothing. Um, I was teaching meditation classes, earning very little money. I was building websites for personal growth authors. I was trying everything I could. Nothing was actually happening. And then I had two breakthroughs. The first breakthrough was we were about to go bankrupt. And you know, I had 18 employees. And in May 2008, what I certainly found out is that we were losing $20,000 a month. We had a quarter million dollars in the bank. And if we didn't stop this, we were gonna run out of money and have to end the company. I sank into a period of depression. And during that depression, 
I went deep into really understanding myself, understanding other aspects of philosophy, understanding the mind. I traveled around the world. I attended conferences by Harvecker, by uh, Esther Hicks. I read books by Neil Donald Walsh. And as I was going through this journey, I realized something. The reason I've been struggling for five years is because in my mind, I had a story that money is wrong, that to be rich is not right, that rich people are somehow bad. And the story had come because I didn't grow up in a rich family. It had just, it was one of those stories that we tell ourselves and whatever we believe about the world is going to be true. So I believe that rich people are a-holes. I believe that to get rich, you got to cheat, you got to screw people over. Malaysia, as you know, is a country with a high degree of corruption. So when you see that growing up, you just assume, oh, everybody got to where they're going by cheating. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to cheat. I also assumed that you had to work really, really, really hard to become wealthy. You had to sacrifice your family. And I was the father of a one-year-old son. I didn't want to sacrifice Hayden's life. I didn't want to sacrifice our bond. So I cut down on my working hours. When I realized that all of this was nonsense, I was telling myself in my head. Okay, and I remember that exact moment. I was attending this event called Millionaire Mind Intensive by Harbecker. And he put up on the wall 20 myths that people who are struggling with money have about money. And one of those myths is rich people are bad. I was like, oh, God damn it, I have that. And another myth is to make money, you have to lie or cheat. I'm like, God damn it, I have that. And another myth was the only way to make money is to really work hard and never stop. And I realized that I had all three of these BS lies in my system. That weekend, I demolished those lies. Now, what was really interesting is that within three months, the company, our company was doing about a quarter million a month. We suddenly hit a new target of 300,000. And then I told my team, let's aim higher, 500,000. We hit that in October. And then I said, okay, 1 million. In December 2008, we hit 1 million. We grew the company 400% in eight months flat when the stuff inside me was taken out. This gave me further evidence that so much of how we perceive the world has to do with our beliefs. I believed in the power of intention, but I didn't understand that we have these beliefs inside us that we don't even realize are not true. We just take them on as kids. And because we believe they are true, they become true for us. Now, from that day onwards, in 2009, I started the, the, uh, the practice of being conscious of what I believe and really looking at my beliefs and going, is this really true? Or is this something I took on from dogma, from culture, from society, from parents, from educators, from the media? And as I start removing all of the beliefs, I start really understanding more and more and more that so much of the world is made up, right? As Steve Jobs said, as soon as you realize that the world around you was made up by people no smarter than you, you realize that you can change things you can poke things, you can create whole new ways of life. And when you do that, your life will never be the same again. That was the awakening I had in 2008. Mm. Now, the story continues, and true then I had other awakenings, other experiences. I had a business partner who tried to kick me out of my own company. That was a very hard time. But things only really started clicking in 2013, when I decided to put a lot of my other projects aside and focus on one thing taking this little web development company, Mindvalley. And back then, nobody knew Mindvalley. We just made websites for other authors. 
I decided to take this company and turn it into an education company for mind, body, and spirit. That was 10 years ago, and since then, there's been no looking back. Hmm. Okay. You, uh, Vishen, speak, you speak a lot about balance, right. meditation, transformation, spirituality, and they're nice things to hear, but do you practice what you preach? Yes. Hmm. So here's what I mean by that. Mind Valley looks at 12 different aspects of human life. We just acquired a company called Lifebook. And the point of Lifebook is to get people to go through a, um, a six-week, it's a six-weeks program, 16 hours over six weeks, and you end up with a 100-page detailed book about your life in all 12 categories. Most people look at their life from a few categories, finance, money, family, no. Here we look at relationships, we look at health, we look at your character, we look at your emotional states, we look at how you're contributing to the world, uh, we look at the, the sense of adventure or environments that you live in. We look at 12 different categories and you go really deep. So I have my life book as my 100-page map of the life I want to create. Then I go into the Mind Valley system and based on the goals I have, I decide how I want to learn and improve myself. Mm -hmm. So I look at my life from these 12 categories and Mind Valley people look at their life from these 12 categories. We do not buy the rule that you have to choose one or two or three, that if you want to be successful, you've got to sacrifice your family or sacrifice your health or sacrifice your friendships. I don't buy any of that nonsense. I believe you can excel at all 12 categories. But then you got to be smart. you got to know the right protocol, the right aspects to bring in, the right things to do and what not to do so that you excel. So I'm constantly a student of the human experience, trying to understand the best exercise routines, the best ways to be a father to my children, the best ways to be um, a good person, the best ways to be a good leader and CEO, constantly studying, 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 studying maybe for about an hour every single day, and then putting these things in practice in my life, mm. using my company as a way to experiment with new practices, using my family, my health, my, my mindset to experiment with new beliefs and practices. I'm constantly guinea-pigging myself, mm. and that's how I try to seek balance. I know also you um, interviewed some interesting, successful people. If I'm not mistaken, um, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, am I correct? Mm -hmm. What for you stood out in successful people like them? Well, everyone that I met who is successful has a different recipe to get there. Hmm. But to me, truly successful people are not people who are necessarily a billionaire or have this massive company. It's not about wealth. Truly successful people to me are people who are happy and balanced. That was my next question. What does success mean to you? Yeah, it's happy and balanced. Happy, that means you are happy with where your life is right now. Mm. Balance, that means your life is balanced. You're not making sacrifices. You're getting good sleep. You're working on something exciting. You are earning great money. Mm. You are good to the people around you. You are a great parent or a great child if you are you know if you're if you're under if you're under 21 you are you are balanced in how you approach life now there's more of course i think if you are ambitious and you're working on something exciting that can benefit humanity that's also great that uh, elevates your level of success 
But ultimately, it's happiness and balance. That is success. Mm. For many of us, that is what we want out of life. But many people don't get there. So many people might become a multi, 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 multi millionaire, but at the expense of their health, their mental health, their relationships. And that's what I think we need to avoid. Absolutely agree. Um, what does love mean to you? Love? So love for me is an energy. Hmm. Remember I told you about how I practice working with energy? The ultimate energy is love. Hmm. And love as an energy means that you do not do things that would hurt other people. But there are different degrees of love. So I love this scale by the philosopher Ken Wilber. He talks about how human consciousness can be egocentric, ethnocentric, world-centric, or cosmocentric. So egocentric is where it's all about yourself. You find egocentric consciousness in prisons, in gangs. You will stab another person for yourself to survive. Ethnocentric is 70% of the world, according to Ken Wilber. Ethnocentric means I'm kind, I'm compassionate, I'll be nice to you, but I'm mostly nice and kind to people who look like me people who share my religion, people who are within my borders, those other people, the refugees, the people who look strange. No, let's keep them out. Let's build a wall. That's ethnocentric. Yeah. Ethnocentric is, it gives countries identity, but from a global perspective, it doesn't really serve us. Ethnocentric means you can fall prey to politicians who make you hate on other people, yeah. who make you distrust people who, who are different, who talk about building walls. Ethnocentric consciousness, is why I was on the Muslim watch list. Then there's a level above that, world-centric. World-centric consciousness is an aspect of love where you truly love all human beings. Now that's good. And that's almost, Ken Wilber says, like 28%, 27% of the world. But at the top 2% is cosmocentric. And cosmocentric is where I think we need to aspire to. And the human species is moving there. The human species is becoming more and more loving, by the way. Every generation has a greater capacity for love than the generation past. Cosmocentric is this. You don't just love all human beings, you love all life. You care deeply about the environment. You care about the oceans. You care about plants, about animals, but you also care about the generations which are yet to be born. Mm -hmm. You do not want to make the world worse off for the next generation. The good news is our children and our children's children's children are becoming more and more and more cosmocentric. You look at the statistics all around the world, it is fascinating what's going on. In 1991, I read a report that said 54% of Americans thought it was wrong for a mixed marriage to occur. Can you believe that in 1991? By 2011, that number had dropped to 4%. In two, year, two decades, the number of people who were against mixed marriages just plummeted. You look at this, in 1963 or so, Sammy Davis Jr., the musician, was banned from performing in the White House by Robert Kennedy, uh, sorry, by John F. Kennedy. Why? Because Sammy Davis Jr., a black musician, had the gal to have a white wife, and it was not allowed. How dare a black man marry a white lady? He was uninvited from the White House. A mere 50 years later, in 2013, Barack Obama, the subject, the, the, the son of a white woman and a black man, is the president of the United States sitting in that White House. In 1963, those people would never have predicted Obama. Now, another example, 
1941 Europe. Do you think the British, the French, the Germans who were all at war would believe that in 1991, the borders of Europe would be erased and a Frenchman could walk into the border into Germany without even getting his passport checked and just choose to live there and work there. Likewise, Germans into France, likewise Brits into Germany and France, that the Soviet Union, who they were also fighting, was gonna collapse. We cannot predict how fast humanity is changing 50 years out because we fail to understand that our children are way beyond us. Our children are so much more advanced. And so we look at human consciousness based on our generation, forgetting that in 50 years, things can change so rapidly. So 50 years from now, what is the world going to look like? And I believe the world is gonna be very different. It's gonna be extremely cosmocentric. I believe 50 years from now, you wanna hear some predictions? 50 years from now, we're gonna see more things like the European Union. We're gonna see like a union of countries in North Africa and the Middle East, a union of Africa, a union of North America. The borders between Mexico, the US and Canada will disappear, just like the borders between European countries are disappearing. Britain will likely rejoin the EU. Russia will be at peace with Ukraine and Russia might even be part of the European Union. Turkey certainly will be part of the European Union. People are gonna be traveling across the world. There's gonna be more mixed marriages. There's gonna be more families with mixed religions. We are gonna be literally a different species operating more like an earth federation and war will be completely virtually wiped out. So this is what makes me so excited about the way humanity is going. But if you think about it right now, it sounds so impossible, but it also sounded impossible to Sammy Davis Jr. in 1963. It also sounded impossible to the average French or German in 1941. Mm. And look what changed in 50 years. Mm. I like listening to you. Um, but I'll, I'll take the love thing and I'll ask a personal one because yeah. I'm also interested in you. Uh, you were married for a good number of years. Yes. 18, right? right? Um, I, so I, me and Christina were dating. Christina was my, my, my former wife. Um, we're still very close friends. We have two children together. We started dating in 2000, got married in 2003, mm -hmm. and we decided to consciously uncouple in uh, 2019. Okay. So what did Vision learn about Vision after that relationship? One of the things I learned is that relationships are not about forever and happily ever after. I came to believe that relationships are about coming together with someone to build a family or to grow, but there should not be any expectation of forever and ever and ever. Mm. You can stay with someone. And if you guys are both growing and you guys are having an incredible love life, great. But at a certain point, if that's no longer true, it is perfectly okay to separate consciously without hate, without drama, without messing up the kids and to become friends. Mm. I'm co-parents with my ex-wife. We are so close to our kids and we are really good to each other. We have dinner at least uh, with our children at least once to twice a week, even though we've been divorced for four, for four years. And it's beautiful and it's great for the kids as well. But we stayed together for, for a good 18 years because she grew up in Estonian Russian culture. I grew up in, in Indian culture and in these cultures, Divorce is considered the ultimate failure, but it shouldn't be. I no longer believe in happily ever after. In fact, that whole idea was invented in Venice in the 17th century 
men and women didn't come together for love. They came together for property engagements. Property like like co- companies coming, uh, families coming together to mm. to put property together. And so I think if you're in a relationship with someone, that's okay. Love them. Be good to them. Be honest with them. Don't cheat. Like be with them. But at a certain point, if you feel that the relationship is no longer letting you grow, it's okay to part ways as friends. And you still love the person, but you love them in a different way. Just like I truly love the mother of my children, but in a different way. Mm. Nice. Um, If uh, you could have dinner with any three people, you probably know this question, right? <laughs> Dead or alive, but everybody understands the same language yeah. hypothetically. Right. Which three people would you want at dinner with you? Okay, so first, Elon Musk. Mm. Okay, because I, I care a lot about Elon. Um, his mother has a program that's coming up in Mind Valley, and I, I know the Musk family history, and I want to make sure he's okay because he went through a really tumultuous 2022. I'd like to have dinner with him because I want to see how I can support him. I think the work he's doing is really important to the world. And I hope that he is healthy and his, he's in great mental health and he's taking care of himself because Elon's an important guy. Second one is Barack Obama because mm. I really respect him as a leader. And I'd like to understand from Barack Obama what are his visions for how humanity should be operating as a united species. Because I need to engineer some of these philosophies into Mind Valley the right philosophies of leadership, of compassion, of, and I love Obama's worldview because he unified people. When he was the president of America, you know, he did his best to bring people together. I remember him on Iranian, on Iranian New Year, recording a greeting to the people of Iran. And that's so beautiful. And these values, Obama was a true cosmocentric leader. I want to understand how we can take these cosmocentric ideas and permeate the global education system. Mm. Now, the third person that I would like to be able to sit down with, if he was still alive, is Nelson Mandela. Mm. And actually, I was so on it because here in Dubai, I recently gave a speech and um, Mandela's widow, Graca Michal, was in the audience and she came up to me and we had the most beautiful connection. But Mandela inspired me to be an educator with his quote, if you want to change the world, change education. Or rather, sorry, the quote was, education is the most powerful tool you can use to change the world. Mm -hmm. I want to understand from Mandela, okay, what do we need to change about education so that we can create a better, more united species of human beings that are operating at the cosmocentric level? Mm -hmm. These three people I want to sit down with dinner at, not because I believe that um, they are so amazing and I, I want to be in their presence. No, I want to freaking work with them. I want to support their ideas and their mission because God gave me this amazing platform called Mind Valley. And I want to take these powerful ideas to a billion people. So I want to collaborate with them because I believe these three people have to put their philosophies are so important for humanity's future. Would you say you're obsessed about Mind Valley? Obsession is good. Mm. Obsession is only not good if you have a singular obsession. I'm obsessed about Mind Valley, but you know what else I'm obsessed about? I'm obsessed about my kids having a really happy childhood. I'm obsessed about making my body fitter and healthier every year I age. I'm obsessed about traveling and tasting the food and the culture of different countries. I'm obsessed about bringing my friends together in the most beautiful social gatherings. I have multiple obsessions Mm -hmm. and all of us should. 
singular obsessions. The human experience is too wide and varied and beautiful to just be obsessed with one thing. Hmm. If, Vishen, you could teach a child only one lesson, what lesson would it be? The most important thing for me when it comes to kids, okay, the most important lesson is that love is an energy that they can channel from beyond. So here when you say child, I don't know if you're talking about my child or you're talking about if I was a teacher and I was speaking to a classroom. Mm. So let's, let's take the more yeah. challenging one. Everyone. Any child. Love. Love is an energy that, so not every child is going to have the advantages of having parents who truly love them. Mm. The sad reality of the world is not every child grows up in a good family. There's so many kids out, out there who are abused, who are, are in horrible situations, and, and we feel for them. The most important thing I think a child needs to understand is that they are not just their physical body. They are plugged into something deeper, and that deeper thing, call it God, call it the universe, loves them. And they can ask for this love, and they can feel this love, and they can channel this love in their heart. And when they feel and channel this love, their job is to understand that they don't need to demand love from someone else. They are good. They are beautiful. They are God's children. They can take this love and they can spread it to other human beings mm -hmm. in all life. Love is that energy. That's why in my meditation approach, the six-phase meditation, we start with a protocol for elevating compassion. You literally feel love coming down from you from above. And you feel that love in your heart. And then you channel that love to all of life. I believe if children learn this, they become stronger versions of themselves. They feel safer. They start to understand and believe that they live in a benevolent universe, not a universe, not, not a life that wants to hit them down, but a universe where they are blessed, where they are watched over, even if they happen to have parents who are not at the level that they deserve. And um, what are you afraid of? Me? Hmm. The biggest thing I'm afraid of is dying too soon and not being able to see my grandchildren. That thing. I don't fear death. I believe in the beyond. I believe that our souls experience heaven and that our souls will get a chance to choose to come back in any type of incarnation we desire. I believe in heaven and I believe in reincarnation. I do not fear death. What I do fear is not being able to be in my physical body and see my grandchildren, because I'm really looking forward to that. Hmm. Um, best moment in your life so far? Oh, that's easy. That is easy. The best moments in my life, and I, I, I well up when I hear this, is um, my daughter being born. We, we had a miscarriage. Um, that was the worst moment of my life was a miscarriage when um, my, my former wife, we lost the baby in 12 weeks and it was horrible on us. I was supposed to be doing a show like this and uh, I, we had just come back from the hospital and we found out that we had lost the baby and I, I got on the show and I just I broke down. We had to cancel the entire shoot. And then we didn't know if we would ever be able to conceive again. And... Um, um, I really wanted to be the father. I had, I had a son. I really wanted him to have a sister because I grew up as an only child. And a year later, 
on Valentine's Day, we conceived and Eve was born. And to see a healthy baby being born, that is the best moment, mm. especially after you've gone through a loss. Mm. You're blessed. Yeah. Um, your mother is a rupee? Yeah. What does she mean to you? My mom? So, my mom and dad, I believe God gave me the mom and dad I have. They were amazing parents, but so much of who I am is because of how they raised me. I became an entrepreneur because I saw my dad go from working in a department store to starting his own company mm. when I was 13. And I saw how hard it was for him, right? I, he, I worked with him in his warehouse. He was shipping, shipping clothes uh, in mass. I worked them in his warehouse, like hauling boxes onto trucks. But he showed me that you can start your own business. You don't have to work for someone. So my entire life, I've been an entrepreneur. I became an educator because my mom was a school teacher. And I saw how much she loved her job and the impact she could have on Malaysian school children. She was the best English, English school teacher in Malaysia. Mm. And so those two things combined made me an edupreneur, an educator entrepreneur. Mm. So I think I had the perfect parents for the life I led. And uh, Christina, in one word. Christina? Mm. Oh, she's absolutely a beautiful human being. So beautiful. And her new book is coming out. It's nice. called Flossom. F-L-A-W-E. S-O-M-E, Flossom. It's a great book nice. and I hope people pick it up. Um, what do Hayden and Eve mean to you? They are... Huh. So, it's interesting. There's this quote by um, Khalil Gibran. Mm -hmm. Your children are not your children. And I think Gibran goes on to say, they are God's expression of life. I love my kids, but they are not my kids. What I mean by that is that I don't seek to mold them. I don't seek to push them in any direction. I, I give them love. I ensure that they, they have the right healthy beliefs. They know that they are loved. They know they understand kindness. They understand the importance of hard work. They understand that they have a whole world that they can, they can explore. But I let them decide how they want to live life and what they want to do. I'll give you an example. The school holidays officially start tomorrow. So my kids have flown down to Dubai to meet me. And after this, we're going on holiday. And they get to choose where they want to go. So they chose Saudi Arabia because they've never been to Saudi Arabia. Mm. Uh, so they choose the holiday. They choose, they make, they choose what they want to learn. Um, my son is learning his sixth language and learning to fly a plane and learning the electric guitar and the saxophone. I, w I would have loved him to learn martial arts because I'm into martial arts, but no, I do not get to impose that on him because he is not my children. He is God's child, right? And so I approach parenting from a very different way. I do not believe in imposing anything on my kids. If they get an F at school, I don't care because I don't care about, the grades don't mean anything anyway. I just want them to, to live their best lives as balanced human beings as possible. Remember what we spoke about? Balance and happiness. That's what I care for them. Vision, if you had, um, I'd call it always the blessing. Mm -hmm. um, actually, I have another question first. Yeah. If Hayden and Eve, how old are they now? Hayden is 15, Eve is nine. Okay, nice. If in 30, 40 years or 
right. whatever long time when me and you are gone and uh, our kids you know they have tough times good times tough right. times and but let's say Hayden and Eve know about this interview uh-huh. and every time every time they go through a dip or hardship they need to see something from their dad right so they'd go to this interview and they'd click what yeah. do you think you'd, they'd like to hear okay so Hayden if you're watching this remember Kensho and Satori remember you can grow through Kensho which is the Zen word for grow through suffering or you can grow through Satori which is the Zen word for grow through insight hmm. remember your Satori practices journal meditate pray read but don't forget that Kensho is some of the most powerful ways of growth as well every woman who breaks your heart Hayden is going to make you stronger as a man and better ready for the next woman. Every business failure you have is going to make you a better entrepreneur. Every time you get into a tiny accident or you end up in hospital because you forgot to take care of your health, you're going to learn how to take better care of your health. So feel grateful for the Satori, but feel equally grateful for the Kensho moment. Remember you live in a benevolent universe. The universe or God or whatever you choose to call it loves you and is protecting you. And just like, remember when you were young, I would make you eat vegetables because I couldn't just feed you ice cream for breakfast. Sometimes the universe will make you eat vegetables, Hayden. And because God is so much wiser than us, you might protest. But those vegetables, those Kensho moments, those failures, those pains are actually good for you. So eat your damn vegetables and embrace it all. And Eve? Same thing for Eve, Mm -hmm. right? But I got to say, Eve, 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 remember, you grew up in a country where the president and the prime minister were both women. And I was listening to the president of Estonia speak here in Dubai, actually, the former president, just a few weeks ago, and she said something. She said, when a young girl sees that both the president and the prime minister are women, that girl grows up believing she can do anything. So Eve, you're an Estonian girl, and I want you to remember that. I want you to grow up believing that you can do anything as a woman, right? And you are going to be a next generation of women where we're going to see a generation with more women in politics, more women in business. And the research is now showing, Eve, that companies and the world do better when we have more women leaders. So you can do anything you want. Eve, you can decide to be a broke artist for all I care. You decide. But I hope whatever you do, you become a role model woman. Now to the question I was going to ask. If you have the blessing to be around loved ones Mm -hmm. on your deathbed, Hayden, Eve, all of them there, what would your last words be to the people around you? Make sure my funeral isn't boring. Nobody gets to wear black. There's going to be a party. You're going to be serving whatever you want to serve. I want celebration. I want my funeral to be a festival of joy. Because that's what life should be like. And I'm not dying. I'm going to see you again in my next life. So don't you dare mourn me. You don't think it's normal to mourn you? No. Hmm. You know what's funny? What? Looking at you saying that answer, it feels like you already miss them thinking of that. I already miss them thinking of that. Yeah, like thinking that you're gone. Yeah. I feel like, I don't know, it's just the feeling I got from you. Like I'm, I'm, pic- I'm making uh-huh. you picture something and you realize you're on your deathbed and you've already missed them. 
Right, right, right. See, I, I believe, I so much believe in the idea of the afterlife. Mm. I don't fear death. And I know I'll see my, I know my children and I have been souls who have had past lives together for eons. Mm. And so I, I don't see the world from the, the scarcity view mm. of a singular life. Nice. Um, if I could take your heart, Vishen's heart, and place it in front of you, what do you think your heart will tell you? Oh, um, love more and more and more. My heart's always telling me that, right? Just love everyone, love more. So I try to spend as much time as I can with friends, with family, um, um, with, with people who I truly love. I just love to love. Last one. Vision in one word. Catalyst. Nice. Catalyst. And I say this because this is what my closest friends tell me. Mm. Everybody who I'm close to elevates. They become better at health. They start a business. Mm. They self-confidence improve. Their health transforms. This is true for everyone who is close to me, for all of my friends, for any woman I date. Catalyst. Mm. My job is to elevate humanity. And so I always start with the people around me. May, may we be each other's catalyst. Then. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. How was that for you? Very nice. Wow, and you asked really good questions. I love this. I gotta take, I gotta take notes from you. Thank really, you. really good job. I enjoyed it. Yeah. It was like- You made me quick. think about so many different things, which I don't get asked before. Not really. That's good. It's a good compliment. Yeah.